I don't know about you, but I like that song. That is good stuff. And the most amazing thing that a human being can say is that I have become a child of God. And I hope every single one of you uh, either know that reality or are willing to pursue it until it truly becomes um, who you are. Well, this morning I'm going to talk about, uh, and we're going to dig into the story again, chapter 19. I'm going to talk essentially about what we're really passionate about in life. And I just want to ask to begin with, what are you passionate about? Thank you. Who said that? Andy. Yeah. Same as the Sunday school answer, right? Now you just mean it a lot more. I know that. Um, A lot of people are passionate about a lot of things, like a, a lot of things. Um, I think of sports right away because, you, you know, you watch it on TV like a hockey game or a basketball game. People are crazy about sports, right? They're, they're passionate about it. Best example, I think, uh, happened this week when the Maple Leafs played the New York Islanders. And John Traveris was going back to New York for the first time since he was uh, signed with the Leafs this past summer. And those people were mad at John. They were booing him like it was like this cacophony of booing and they were throwing things at him and saying things to him I mean they were really annoyed that they felt betrayed by him he left the team he played for his whole career to go to Toronto Uh, I want to tell you too the the players uh, for the Islanders they were passionate they were motivated they had a they had a point to make here they were going to show John Traveris right Uh, and they played incredibly well you know the only people in that arena who were not passionate that night The Leafs, they stunk. They were terrible. They lost 6-1. No passion. No passion. You know, I think about people who are Elvis fans. And I'm not talking about people who like his voice. I'm talking people who dress like him. And who actually think he's still alive, you know? And they go to conventions and they try to walk around like they're Elvis. And, you know, I ain't nothing about him, etc. You know, I like Star Trek, but I'm not going to dress up like Mr. Spock and go to a Star Trek convention, right? Like, that's just over the top. And I could go on and on and on about what people are passionate about. What are you passionate about? What's in your heart? You know, like nothing else. You know, what grabs you and you give yourself to? Well, our story today essentially is about this question. We're in this story. We're, we're, we're moving through and getting toward, really toward the end of the Old Testament. We're hearing about the God story, what God is accomplishing. He's taking us from Eden to Revelation. He's taking us from creation and the fall when, when Adam and Eve sinned and we're all stuck with this inherited sin nature all the way through to the day when Christ will come again. And we're on this journey to discover what that whole story is and God's at work. The lower story is uh, the experience of God's people then, and we equate that to where we're at now. We have a lower story too. God's still at work right now. And we have a lower story, and we get to decide how to participate in that upper story if we wish. But anyway, Judah has been exiled. This is what we talked about last week, that the people of God have been overcome by the Babylonians, the great king Nebuchadnezzar, and they've been exiled to Babylon, 800 miles to the east of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been razed to the ground. The temple has been destroyed. The walls are in disarray. They have been broken down. And we pick up the story 70 years later. And, and, and when the Jews were being exiled from Jerusalem, Jeremiah the prophet said, in 70 years, God's going to bring you back here. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 19. They return to, to, to Jerusalem. So I'm going to read to you 263 in the story, Ezra 1, 1 to 3. Listen to this. In the first year of 
Cyrus, king of Persia, so now the Persians are dominant and powerful, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Now listen to this. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. May their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, that is a remarkable thing because God has touched the heart of the king of Persia, the, the superpower of the day. And he has so influenced him not only to believe in God, but to hear from the Lord and to say to the, the, the people of Judah, you can now return and you can build that temple. And not only can you build a temple, I'm going to resource the building of the temple. Now talk about the faithfulness of God. You know, the upper story is carrying on. Through Jeremiah, 70 years before, you're going to go, but you're going to come back. It's happening. God has worked it all out in a powerful way. And he is bringing the people back to Judah because out of that nation about 500 plus years later comes who jesus and the upper story of course is going to continue primarily through the person of jesus christ born in bethlehem so the reality is that god is at work and and they're going to go back and they're going to build a temple now we've got to remember the significant symbolic power of the temple it's supposed to do two things as we've talked about number one it's to communicate to the people the reality of God's desire to be with them and to let them know that he is here now. God dwell, would dwell in the Holy of Holies. They didn't have access to him, only the high priest once a year, but their God was with them. And just going back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve walked in the garden, that's the model, that's the example, that's the longing in the heart of God. He wants us back. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants his life and our life to intersect. He wants to be with his people, and he wants his people to want him and to love him. That's the power of the temple, number one. And of course, number two, the temple is the solution to the problem of sin. The sacrificial system had functioned, and it would function again, and animals would be sacrificed, all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus when he would die on the cross and literally in that place deal with the sin problem so that our sin could be forgiven, so that we could come back into a relationship with God. So the temple is pointing to that reality. And, and as a result, the temple is incredibly important. God present among his people, loving them and being loved by them. And the promise of sin to be forgiven in the person of Jesus. So in 537 BC, listen, 50,000 people. Can you imagine? 50,000 people travel 800 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. You know, the energy, the expectation, the sense of purpose must have been great as they anticipated, anticipated re building that temple and knowing the presence of God again as a people. When they arrived, they made it their priority. So let me read this to you, page 264. If you've got your storybooks with you, that would be great. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, they're being called the Israelites again, so there's no divided kingdom anymore, all right? Uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, that's done. Now they're the people of God, the, the descendants of Israel. The Israelites had settled in their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest Zerubbabel, son of 
Shealtiel and his associates began to build the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both uh, the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifice, the sacrifice for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. They are re-engaging their faith. They are, they are stepping back in to what God has called them to do. And under the, I'm not going to speak of it much, but under the leadership of this man named Zerubbabel, the temple would be rebuilt. Listen, 265, I'll carry on. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their place to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. They're praising God. And all the people gave a great shout to, uh, of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sounds of weeping because the people had made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine this experience, both weeping for joy and shouting in celebration because of what God had blessed them with and brought them back to? You see, the hearts of these people were captured by this dynamic reality. We have come home. We are building the temple. We will worship God as we once did, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. This is an incredible thing. They overcame opposition. They stayed focused on the task that God had called them to. Amazing moment in the history of Israel. You know what word comes next? But. As time went by, um, they would lose their focus on this task and they would give to get attention to other things. Their own needs, their own endeavors. And the God, and, and the God who had called them to this just started to take a lesser place in their lives. Let me read that to you, 265 again. It says this. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Listen to this. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You know how many years it was when absolutely nothing was done to build the temple? 16 years. They started strong. They were passionate. They were engaged. But for 16 years, nothing happened, and the temple lay unfinished. What does that say to you? What does that communicate about their heart? Well, it was then that God's people hear, heard from another prophet. Are you getting the picture here? <laughs> you know, everything's going great. Things fall off the rails, and what happens? God raises up a spokesperson for himself, and his name was Haggai. Um, 266, chapter 1, verse 3. 
Listen to what is described. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is time for you yourselves to be living... Oh, sorry. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? Remember that phrase. While this house remains a ruin, speaking of the temple. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. So he's getting ready. God's addressing his people through his prophet. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up to, into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on grain and new wine, the olive oil and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. <clears throat> what does God do when God's people lose passion? Ever thought about that? Because I'm going to be drawing a parallel pretty quickly, right? <laughs> what does God do when God's people lose passion for him? When they're priorities become misplaced and they focus their lives on other things? Well, in this instance, what he did was to bring a drought to the land. They worked hard and they planted the crop, but they got nothing in return. And God says through Haggai, give careful thought to your ways, my people. Think about how you're living. I want to post what I've read to you, verses uh, 5 and 6 of chapter 1. Um, this to me is really, really interesting stuff. And I want to ask you whether you can find your life in it, okay? You know, God says, you've planted much but harvest little. You work hard, but your, your work doesn't produce what you want it to produce. You eat, but you never have enough. You're always hungry. You know, you might be filling your face, but you're always hungry, never satisfied. You drink, but you never have your fill. These things which are supposed to bring joy and, 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 and completion and goodness into life, they're not providing it. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You still feel the chill of the air in spite of being bundled up. You earn wages only put to put them in a purse with holes in it. Now, who can't relate to that, right? You know, we earn and we make money and we think we've got enough, but we've never got enough. And what's being spoken here is that, that essentially life is just not working out the way that I think it's supposed to, not the way that I want it to be. And here's the reality. There are seasons in life. There are seasons in life that God allows into the experience of his people to get them to think carefully about our, their ways. Happened then. This is our lower story also. Is there, it was their lower story in that day. I want to ask you this question. You know, in North America... We are incredibly blessed. We have so much. We have wealth, and we have homes, and we have um, clothing, and we have food in great abundance, and we have holidays, and we have entertainment, and we have education, and we have health care. I could just keep on going. We have so, so much. But let me ask you this question. Do you think we're satisfied? Is it enough? Is it what we want? And I'm going to ask you right now, is life what you really long for it to be? You know, the application here is pretty easy, isn't it? <laughs> For God's people, when they lose their first love, 
for God's people when their enthusiasm for the Lord wanes and becomes so much less than it once had been. When we get distracted by other things, you know, I think it's so, so interesting that Haggai says to these people, you're living in paneled houses. Well, my house remains in ruins. It's like, if you were living then and you had paneling in your house, you were doing well. You know, like, you get paneling in your house? Like, that's impressive. God's saying, you're really focused on that house of yours, but my house is lying in ruins. You see the contrast that's being drawn? You see where the, hearts of the, the heart of these, this people has gone? It's just not the way God wants it to be. You know, when we have our houses and we have our things that can distract us, we have our jobs which can become a priority or our friendships or our education, you fill in the blank. These things aren't bad in themselves, but at times they become what we're first and foremost passionate about. As opposed to the Lord, we get focused upon them. And in so doing, we lose the passion for our God. Now listen, these people of Judah did not forget about God. It's not that they just sort of abandoned the Lord and just thought about their homes and their jobs and so on and so forth. No, these people were people of faith. But the Lord's just not their passion anymore as they focus on other things. You know what God's saying here? He's saying essentially, you can't put me on the shelf. You know, you, you can't live your life in such a fashion that I'm not your priority anymore if you're mine. He's pretty clear about this throughout the Bible, but here it's just so abundantly clear. Um, and if you set me aside, I'm potentially going to bring, bring a season into your life of dissatisfaction and even disappointment as crop after crop fails, as you put on clothing but you remain cold. As you eat your food, but it never satisfies you. You drink your drink, but it never fills you up. And he does it again out of love, because everything God does is out of love. And it's entirely to get us to think carefully about our ways, to take that moment in life when it's presented to us, where we can stand back and we think, man, am I doing life well? Is this the way God wants me to live my life? Am I discovering and realizing in life everything that life can bring me? Or am I not? And I want to tell you, with this challenge comes incredibly good news. You see, what the challenge is, as with Judah, God is saying, my people, come back to me. You can come back to me. You can return home. You know, God's saying, IPC, the people of, of this congregation, I'm calling you out of Babylon to live again this God-centered life. This life where you are a distinct people, unlike the world that surrounds you, because your heart is with me. I want to tell you, we're not called to build a temple. You know why? Because we are the temple of God. See, Jesus would come and he would die on a cross and he would bear our guilt and our shame and our penalty on the cross literally in those few hours, the dramatic saving work of Christ in the cross, and he would rise again to be the living Lord of those who are called the children of God. And those people, 
and I'm sure so many of us here are in this category, we have our sin forgiven and we have been reconciled to God. We are living in relationship with that one we call Father. And the Bible says in, in that dynamic reality, the Spirit of God comes and dwells within us. Literally, God is here. And the Apostle Paul says, you are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God, right? You are it. <laughs> and as a result, we become that mechanism through which the glory of God is seen by the whole world. We become that mechanism where, whereby people get to come close to God because God is here. We are, we are that mechanism, that dynamic reality where people hear the truth of God spoken from his word both by my lips and by yours. And we are that reality, the temple of God through which people ultimately come to hear about this possibility of forgiveness of sin so that they too might be reconciled with God. We are the temple of God. And we are not to build the temple of God, my friends. We have another calling. But we are not to be distracted from that calling. Not distracted by our kids or our spouses. Ooh. You serious, Chris? Yes, I'm serious. Because God says nothing comes before me in your life and in your heart. Not to be distracted by your jobs and not to be distracted by your homes or any engagement that you might see, not even the Toronto Maple Leafs. Because you see, when that happens, and it does, that's the passage here. It's, it's, it, it's what happens so often. All of a sudden, we find ourselves and our passion for the Lord and our prioritization of the Lord has just begun to wane. And we find ourselves a little less often in worship on a Sunday morning. And we find ourselves no longer caring about serving others and building God's kingdom like we used to one day in the past. And we stop giving the way that we once give. And we stop taking time to be with Christ in the presence of our own homes and nurturing that incredible relationship that we can have with the living God because we have other things that are more important to us. No, we don't forget about God. Uh, but we put him on the shelf until Haggai speaks God's word into our lives. And through him, the Lord gets our attention and he calls us back to himself. And he asks the question, where's your heart? What are you passionate about? You see, my friends, we don't get to build a temple. You know, it was built and it's being destroyed again. Uh, but we get to build the kingdom of God. We get to be the means whereby people do hear about salvation in Jesus and they get to have their sin forgiven. We get to be the people who do communicate the reality of who God is and that he has come among us. We get to build the church, which then changes the world. That's what we get to do. That's our calling. I'm going to read uh, our mission statement for you. have that popped up here. Actually, I'm going to have you read it with me. How's that sound? This is a statement which describes why IPC exists, okay? Let's do it together. We exist to introduce people to Jesus, deepen our faith, participate in God's life-transforming story, and serve others at home and around the world. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that capture your focus in life. 
is that why you live? Is that what, what you're passionate about? Or is it just words in a screen that the elders dreamed up one day? You know, we exist to introduce people to Jesus. Raw carrot, fantastic. It's going to be amazing. But I'm so glad that Joyce sent a note along to us today to talk about eternal hope in Jesus. We're going to not only bless people's lives in the way that others aren't and show them the love of God, we're going to tell them about Jesus. We're going to introduce them to Jesus because that's what the church does. Deepen our faith. You know, we're doing it now, I hope. God's speaking and you're receiving and being changed. Meeting in life groups, small groups all through the week. Several dozen of them in our congregation to study scripture and to grow in faith. Participate in God's life-transforming story. That's the upper story. That's why we are here. That's why the church exists. That's why the Spirit of God came at Pentecost and, 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 and dwelt the, the, the people of God in that day and they became powerful witnesses to the reality of Christ risen from the dead and alive. Salvation in him. Are you participating? Are you watching? And serve others at home and around the world. Man, service. This is who we are. I'm a child of God and I'm a servant. Isn't that our primary identity as Christian people? Jesus came not to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And those who follow him exist to serve. Not to be served, sorry, but to serve and to give our lives as a ransom so that others too can know the reality of the ransom that Jesus has provided. So here's what I want to suggest, my friends. I recognize there's some people here today, and, and it's possible that nobody's ever really, with passion, given themselves fully and wholly to Christ. Um, here's something that I speak to on occasion, and if you come all the time, you'll know this. There's a huge difference in believing in God and being passionately committed to Jesus. Everybody almost in their uncle believes in a God. And as I've said to you many times, the Bible says the devil believes in God. Knowing that God exists is not what we're talking about here. We believe in Christ and what Jesus did on the cross for our salvation, and we embrace that. That becomes relevant to us through faith in him. And then we are called to passionately commit ourselves to him, to commit our lives to Jesus Christ. So I'm talking to the people of God, then Judah, now IPC. And I'm here to ask you, forthrightly, have you committed your life to Christ? Because if you have, then it recognizes and activates the faith that Scripture describes. We come to that place where our passion is the Lord Jesus. Our passion is the building of the kingdom that he came and died and rose again to create and sent his spirit to empower I want you to grapple with that. And if you have never committed your life to Christ, I'm going to encourage you to do that. Secondly, and this is the direct application of our chapter today, anyone here who was once passionate for Jesus, but they recognize that they're not so passionate anymore, 
Anyone here who once came into this incredible relationship with God through Christ and just blown away by what God has, had done for you, his grace and his forgiveness, this new, this new life that you stepped into as you were born again and entered into the kingdom of God, entered into the family of God, and you were on fire for Jesus. But maybe since then you've been distracted by homes and jobs and children and career. You fill in the blank. And so much so that, quite frankly and honestly, the Lord's not your passion anymore. He's not first priority in your heart. Well, it's really, really clear here that my, my calling as a pastor is to call you back to him. Not only in relationship, but to call you back to the task that he has given us to do as the church. To share his glory with the world. To tell the world and one another of his truth. To communicate to people that there is salvation in Jesus and forgiveness in him. To be people empowered by the spirit who build the kingdom of God. I'm not kidding. Scripture says, for those who follow Jesus, that is to be our first priority, our passion in life. And I think I heard Randy Freezy say this. It's time for some folks to come out of retirement. I don't care how old you are. You could be 40 and retired because you're on to other things. You could be 70 and retired because you're retired and you don't think it I've done my no you haven't done your thing because you're a follower of Jesus. Your thing might change but we exist to introduce people to Jesus, deepen our faith, participate in God's life-transforming story, and serve others at home and around the world. Don't be distracted from the calling of God in your life. I want to conclude this way. You know, you might say, but Chris, what about my spouse? And what about my kids? And what about my home? And what about my job and my, and my education? What about all these things? What about my clothes and my food and my, and my drink? I mean, how does that work? Well, I'm going to read you a passage uh, from Jesus, which I, it's almost like I, I don't know this to be the case at all, but I can hardly believe that Jesus hadn't read Haggai before he taught his disciples this, Okay. Jesus said in, in Matthew 6, and we're going to begin at verse 25 and go to 33, these words. Um, Jesus is going to talk to his disciples about not worrying. I think our worry tells us often where our focus is, where our priority is, where our hearts are, our passion is. Therefore, Jesus said, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Any resonance here with Haggai? You're noticing? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow was thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, <clears throat> saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? 
for the pagans ran after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Do you hear it? Our focus, our passion, our hearts are to be first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The building of that kingdom, that's our calling. And I want to tell you, my friends, if we will do that, if we will be such a people, if we will be individuals in that, in that uh, reality, what Jesus is saying is God's going to take care of everything else in your life. He is. What about my kids? You live that way, you will not believe how blessed your kids will be because God will bless them. You live like that, you watch how your wife or your husband will thrive because God is blessing them. You, 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 wor- you, know, you worry about clothing and food, you'll see God provide for you. Do you believe this or not? And I could go on and on. You worry about money and having enough so it doesn't fall through your pocket. God is going to provide for you and you will be satisfied in it. Because he will show up in power in very real ways and give to you what you need because he loves you. And because you love him and you've come home and your heart is his. See, this is the thing that God calls us to into that deep loving relationship. And I want to tell you when we put God first, when we put Jesus first, everything else will fall into place in life. Everything. And life will become, listen to me, life will become what we long for it to become. We will work and find it meaningful. God will provide. We will eat and it'll taste good. And our bellies will be filled. We'll drink and we'll be satisfied. See the reality, my friends? Put God first and let him provide everything else. Make him your priority. Make him your heart's desire. Make him your greatest passion. And watch what he does in your life. That is the blessed life. That is the life of abundance. That is the quality of eternal life that Jesus offers to his people. If we will only step in. So here's what I want to say. Every now and then, what this text is saying is this. God's people need a course correction. They need an opportunity to step back and think about how I'm doing this. Am I doing it well? Is life what I want it to be? Sometimes God sets up that scenario so we think in those terms. And then at the end of the day, we're not called to be passionate about the Leafs or Elvis or Star Trek or our homes or our work or our kids or our food or our drink or the money that is or isn't in our pocket. That's not to be our focus. Our focus is to be on Christ. And we are to be passionate about him and his calling in our lives. I'm going to show you a, a video that was presented to me. And um, first I thought, mm, I don't want anyone to feel in any way that this is judgmental. So I don't want you to think that. But I watched it a few times and I thought, you know, well, there's a good challenge in this. So let's watch this video together and then we'll pray to conclude.
Lord Jesus, we know that uh, your word says that when you return, um, your longing is for, us, is for you to find us faithful. And Lord, it's so easy to be distracted. It is so easy to give ourselves to other pursuits, sometimes things that seem very pressing and urgent. It's so easy to live life, Lord, and just to see our focus on you and our priority for you and our passion for you to simply wane. But Lord, today you call us back. You call us from Babylon into your presence that we might build your kingdom, that we might hear your call in our lives and we might give it ourselves to that calling with great passion and conviction. Lord, there may be people here today who have never committed their lives to Christ. Yes, believing in him and even believing in his work on the cross, but never unreservedly giving themselves wholeheartedly to you <clears throat> and to the cause that you came and died for. Lord, I pray that you will work by your spirit in the minds and in the hearts of those people. And that they will find themselves at some point in life saying, yes, Jesus, I give you my life. I exist for you. You are my greatest passion. And Lord, there are likely people here today who have once been far more committed and passionate about the things of God than they are right now. Folks, Lord, who may be feel they have done their time and have stepped away and have left your house in ruins, as you said, not engaging as they once did. <clears throat> God, our prayer for those folks is that they would really think seriously about what you have spoken here today and that they would come again back to their first love as Revelation describes it. Lord, we would be a people who are faithful to you. We want our lower, lower story, Lord, to reflect the reality that we have encountered the living God and that he is our greatest priority, that his purposes dwell in our hearts, that his glory is, a, is so, so important to us. And Lord, we would be a church which is on fire for Jesus, letting nothing distract us from the cause of Christ. So Lord, I pray for everyone here that as, if they, have, as they have heard your word spoken, as they have heard Haggai challenging the, the people of Israel, that they would take this opportunity to think deeply about their lives and how they are living their lives and what they really want out of life. And I pray, Lord, that they would turn to you and find life in Jesus like never before. Holy Spirit, speak to each person gathered here. Draw them, Lord, to that place of full commitment to Jesus.